This is a CNA podcast. Okay, Brian, it's time for our favorite quick fire round family offices. Give us your thoughts. Family offices are very important if you have a lot of money. The top three services provided by family offices. Family offices invest wealth for multiple generations. They look at philanthropic investments for the good of society. And they also interact with other families to try and help create co-investing opportunities. And just in case I have enough money in my bank account, minimum investment required to set up a family office. I would recommend at least $100 million. $100 million that I do not have. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Hey, I'm Andrea Hing. Welcome to Money Talks. Now, the ultra-rich, they love Singapore, and that's no secret. After all, we've got a strong track record as a financial and wealth management hub, so it's no surprise that we're seen as an attractive and safe location for the rich to move their investments and even their families. Many super-rich families are also setting up offices to help manage their wealth, it's estimated that Singapore had some 700 family offices at the end of 2021, and this is up from 400 in 2020, so just a 300 increase in a year. And they are in good company. Notable names with family offices in Singapore include Google co-founder Sergey Brin, British billionaire James Dyson, even Tsang Yong, the founder of beloved hot pot chain Hai Ti Lao. So what exactly is a family office? Do their duties extend beyond just managing investments? To give us an insight into this rather rarefied world, I have with me Brian Henning. Brian is Senior Vice President at Eaton Solutions. Hey Brian, welcome to Money Talks. Hi Andrea, thanks for having me on today. It's our pleasure. So why is Singapore seen as such an attractive location for ultra high net worth individuals? You've laid it out a little bit in the outset there. It, Singapore is a very stable environment. And I think coming out of COVID, especially people have seen how Singapore managed through COVID and daily life was not that disruptive. But first and foremost, we have a great legal system here. We have a great infrastructure and an ecosystem. And I think the Singapore government has made it clear that they want Singapore to be one of the preeminent wealth management centers in the world. The Economic Development Board is very encouraging of people coming to Singapore that are going to add economic impact, the Wealth Management Institute that does a lot of education, and everything is linked with the MAS, which does the regulation. And it's all very progressive, and it's all very pro-business in a good way. Then you have the supporting cast, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the business services, and they're all in a nice little compact central business district. So if you're coming here from another country, you can just easily just go and door to door and get yourself set up. Singapore has made life very simple for people looking to relocate and looking to manage their wealth in an offshore center that's dynamic and linked to the rest of the world in a way that's easy to make their life easy and they can connect remotely from wherever they are. Last but not least, a very talented workforce. So it all adds up to something which is quite compelling for people to look to Singapore as an offshore center. Yeah, it sounds like Singapore has the ripe ecosystem for this. Yeah, and it's scalable because mm. a lot of this is easily accessible and repeatable. And that's what makes it successful because people can come here 
and repeat. And it's not quite cookie cutter because every wealthy family is different. But the processes are similar and they've been done. We're not trailblazing here. We're actually just following existing processes and they can be executed very seamlessly and very efficiently. Mm. Now, earlier I said that there were something like 700 family offices here in Singapore, and that is the 2021 number. We know that a lot of it had to do with the pandemic, especially what was happening with China Were the seeds planted way before the pandemic, though? Perhaps when the likes of Jack Ma were under the radar of the Chinese government, perhaps? Well, you know, Andrea, I don't really want to speculate on any of that. But what I would say is, in my experience, and I was in private banking for 15 to 20 years before joining Eaton Solutions, so I've seen this from the private banking side. And money has been flowing into Singapore for many, many years, irrespective of what may or may not be going on in mainland China. People have seen Singapore as a destination and an offshore wealth center. And the real comparative, I guess, would be Hong Kong, because way back when people used to see Asia as a Southeast Asia hub, which may be Singapore, and a Northeast Asia hub would be Hong Kong. And then over the years post the financial crisis, a lot of multinationals pulled out of either Singapore or Hong Kong. And so over time, I think people have started to see it as almost one And I think people then started to choose between Hong Kong or Singapore. And I'm sure there's an element of choosing Singapore because maybe it's a little further away from Hong Kong and maybe I want to be a little further away from the mainland. I don't know. Hong Kong is an attractive center, but Singapore is becoming even more attractive. And I think undoubtedly the EDB working with MAS to make residency available through 13O and 13U schemes had a big part to play because people saw, maybe I want Singapore as a residency. Schooling's good there, medical's good there, and even the, the climate's a little different than North Asia. We don't have typhoons. I can recall back in banking days when Singapore stated it wanted to be the Switzerland of Asia. I don't know if you remember that, but that was a long time ago. And it's sort of started to happen. And it's just a natural thing. And just that general attraction, I think, had more to do with it than any specific event that may have happened in mainland China. Mm, That's a fair point and a fair observation as well. Would you be able to comment on perhaps the demographic of the types of families that do come to Singapore to set up family offices? Well, undoubtedly, they come from everywhere. There's a lot coming from Northeast Asia, for sure, and that includes Taiwan, mainland, and to some degree, Hong Kong. There's also a lot coming from India. India has recently changed some rules, which makes it easier for onshore Indians to maybe move a little bit more money offshore into Singapore. Australia, I'm aware that Australians are looking up here. I've had a few conversations with some of them. It's quite broad, and you mentioned at the outset, there's some pretty famous names from the US and Europe that have used Singapore. And so it's kind of a mixed bag, I would say. But yes, maybe if you looked at who is seeking residency, maybe there's a few more coming from Northeast Asia at the moment. Maybe COVID bumped that along a little bit in our favor, but it's not fair to just hone in on one particular region and one particular country like mainland and just say that's the predominance. I think it's quite well diversified. Mm. I think the common theme here is that Singapore is growing in attraction rather than the other way around where something is spurring these families to set up family offices. Or it could be a little bit of both. 
Speaking of those setting up family offices, what are the barriers to entry? Can just anyone set up a family office? Is there like a minimum investment amount that is required? Protocols, procedures they need to fulfill? If they're looking at residency, then there are definitely minimums which are prescribed by the MAS, you know, at least 50 million or 100 or 500 million. That means investable assets and there's a limitation. You need to invest in Singapore-specific investments and you need to spend a certain amount of money on Singapore services. But generally speaking, the way we look at this is people become wealthy over time, right? So the traditional person maybe in Asia was a a small business owner, import-export. Over time, they built their businesses throughout the region, maybe even internationally. A lot of people in Asia invest in real estate, and so maybe they started to buy shop houses or buy commercial buildings. So what happens is as they enter 50s, 60s, I guess, they have a whole conglomeration of wealth. And then as people start to sort of sell things, they liquidate, right? And then they get big pools of money. Traditionally, these people, wealthy people have private bank accounts, and maybe they have four or five of them. But then after a while, they find once they get to a certain level, and we see this typically 100 million and above of kind of net worth, then they start to think about, well, hang on, this is becoming really complicated. I've got five different banks. I've got three kids. They've got kids. I'm getting a bit older. I'm starting to get concerned about how I manage all this and pass it on to future generations. If you're in the private banking space, you see in in Asia, people have this tendency to invest in a little bit higher risk items. They like to punt on the market occasionally with some of their money. But the older they get, then people start to get concerned about wealth preservation and wealth transfer. So then they start to talk to their bankers and then their lawyers and accountants. And then it starts to get very complicated. And then they say, you know, wouldn't it be great if I had one person managing my money and one person looking after it, then this idea of a family office starts to emerge. It's kind of like a mini business, really. There's a big pool of money. There's a lot of assets. There's a lot of complicated maybe legal structures like trusts and other things, maybe even foundations. So then all of a sudden it's like, hang on, I need someone to look after. So then I set up a family office. But I think your question was, what are some of the barriers to entry? Well, if you start to hire people, And one of our challenges in Singapore is people are getting more and more expensive and they're kind of scarce, you know, some of the talent you're looking for. Then do rent an office space, right? If you're in touch with what's going on with rent in Singapore, but that's going up. So we look at costs of family office, like an organization being about one to 2% of the assets being managed at the lower end. So if you think about a hundred to 250 million pot of money, that's between one to $2.5 million. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, maybe I'm making five to 6% on my investments. Maybe I can afford it, but you need to get organized now, right? You need to incorporate, you need to hire the right people. Then you need to start worrying about systems and accountants. And so when you transition out of letting the banks manage your money for you to you taking more direct control, then you need trusted advisors who are helping you. So it is like building a mini business. And obviously we deal with a lot of our clients from the US, you know, these are billion and above, in some cases, hundreds of billions, right? So they are little mini corporations in their own right. So they have teams of 20, 30 people. At that level, you can afford more things. Where you started was how many family offices have come to Singapore to set up recently. A lot of them are in that 
50 to 250 million. And if you talk to a lot of the lawyers and advisors who deal with these people, one of the first things they say to them is, why are you doing this? What are you trying to achieve? Let us help you create what's called a family office charter. So then we can talk about how would you like your money managed? Is there ways you don't want it managed? Is there ways you do want it? What kind of return are you looking for? It's a whole planned approach. And so where we think there's an opportunity in Singapore is helping the ecosystem come together to help these people because everyone's coming in here and they're getting a piece of the answer. In some cases, they're getting a good piece of legal advice or a good piece of tax advice, but they're not thinking clearly about how I set up this little entity that's going to manage my money and how I do it cost effectively. Because as they get into it deeper and deeper, then all of a sudden you've got people costs. You've got all those costs I talked about. So the real impediment to me, and from what I can see, is not the desire to set up the family office. It's really, first and foremost, understanding why you want to set it up, then getting the right advice to help you operationalize it over time. It's the mindware, right? It's making sure people are focused on the right things as they go to set up so that they can be efficient and effective down the road. You spoke about there being a slight lack of skilled or the right workers to be part of this machine of family offices and it being expensive in Singapore, right? Do you think that's going to make Singapore lose its edge, though, as a family office hub? To clarify, what I meant is some of these people you want managing your money and some of these people that you want as talented CFOs with accounting backgrounds, by definition, they're going to be scarce, because talent is always scarce. It doesn't matter if it's Singapore or anywhere. The challenge is you need to attract that talent. And a lot of the ways you attract talent is money as well as job satisfaction. What Singapore would have to be careful of, as would Hong Kong. And if you think about Japan way back, Japan used to be a great financial center until it kind of priced itself out of the market and people didn't want to set up there anymore. So I think Singapore will always face a challenge of its inherent cost base, inflation, and talent pool right? I think this is natural, but there are other hubs out there that are very envious of where Singapore is. And if you look at Dubai, they would love to have what Singapore has. So yeah, the world is a competitive place, right? So for sure, <laughs> Singapore has done well and it's made great strides, but you can't sit on its laurels. If you look at the budget and if you look at how Singapore government is looking at it, I think they understand that. And if you talk to EDB, they certainly understand that. For them, it's a Goldilocks of the right incentives, the right investment back into Singapore. I know that when they look at those family offices, they're really trying to encourage them to come here, but also put back. And then it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, I lived in Switzerland for a while. It's very expensive in Switzerland, you know? Oh, yeah. And Singapore's, I think, you know, if you look at the latest polls on most expensive cities in the world. You know, We're Sing right there at the top. Yeah. Singapore is right in there. So we have to be careful. And that's why when I look at this and when I talk to family offices, we're just trying to help them set up effectively and create what we call operating leverage, which is you can grow, but as you grow, your cost base doesn't necessarily grow because you use technology and outsourcing effectively. So there's a yin and yang for everything, right? So for sure, yes, yeah. Singapore's great. Yes, there's going to be cost pressures. But how do we then work to supplement that to come up with the right answer? Yeah, it's always a balancing act. Now, when we talk about family offices, is it just about managing and investing money? Are there other duties beyond that that a family office uh, fulfills for families? Absolutely. 
So we have a client who's in New Zealand and they, they have 250 family members. They are seven generations, right? If you go back to the original founder, he set up a lot of businesses. He has a lot of things going on and they evolved over time. Yes, they managed those investments, but now after six or seven generations, we have operating companies, we have investments that create income. How do we pool that? and make sure that all those multi-generations get through their trusts or through an annual stipend. How do we do that? We have very few in Singapore that are seven generations strong, but initially it starts with managing that big pot of money or all those investments. But then these owners are thinking about a lot of things. They're thinking about wealth transfer to those multi-generations. They think about philanthropy and how can I do things to benefit in Singapore or the region, ultra high net worth people aren't just about the money for themselves. There's a strong sense of wanting to do social good and they want to focus on philanthropic efforts. How do we want to implement that through giving and investing? What's our wealth transfer so that we do it tax effectively and we do it in a way that makes sense to me as the patriarch, but then would make sense after I'm gone. And then it's the mundane Maybe you have a bunch of properties. Some of these wealthy people have villas in France or, or Phuket or wherever. That's an entity that I need managed. And it has a gardener. Can you take care of all the fees for that? Who's going to do that? How am I going to keep track of that? So it's a whole raft of things, but it's not just about the money. The money is, I guess you would say it's the core, but everything around that is about how do I manage my family? And these families go to second gen, third gen, fourth gen. Communication is a huge issue in big families. Some families want to know what, where's all the money and where's it going, and other families just want to know, what am I going to get this year? So yeah. communication is, is a big part of what family offices do as well. Hello everyone, my name is Crispina. And I'm Adrian. And we're the hosts of a podcast called Work It. If you've never heard of it, well, it's a good time to tap in. In the last 20 episodes, we've discussed topics like how to negotiate for a salary increase. Or how to get along with younger colleagues who have different values from you, which incidentally is our top performing episode. If work consumes your life and you want some perspective on issues like management, stress, even office romance, then this podcast should be on your list. A new episode drops every Monday. Catch us on the CNA app or wherever you get your podcasts. Once upon a time though, family offices didn't exist. It's relatively new if you want to think about it in terms of the 21st century. How did rich families manage their wealth before family offices were even a thing? I'm no historian on this, Andrea, <laughs> but if you go back into Europe and old wealth, right? Wealth that's been handed on from property owners over centuries, right? Wealthy people have always had a way of having people around them who look after their estates and look after things. So I think this family office concept, you could probably deconstruct it to my chosen advisors, my trusted people, if you will, right? So I think it's always existed. I think this concept of a family office as a more legal entity is more explainable because a lot of the clients we see in the US, they've grown businesses and then they've IPO'd those businesses and that's created massive wealth. And so they were used to operating companies, right? They were operating companies with accountants and all that. And then a lot of them thought, well, hang on, why should it be any different if it's my own money? Let's just start to replicate a little mini organization. 
again, I'm not the historian here. And someone who's listening to your podcast will probably say, I can tell you all this. So this wealth has always existed and it's always been managed. In some cases, some wealthy people set up their own banks, right? And they manage it through a bank. You're right, though. It's more of a current concept called a family office. It's more transferring concept that we understand, which is a business, into a how I manage my wealth, which is complicated, like a business. Mm, okay. Speaking of complicated, Singapore recently adopted stricter rules when it comes to family offices. One of those rules include hiring at least two investment professionals. So maybe you could walk us through a typical setup of, of a family office mm -hmm. and perhaps who's involved, in what capacity. Okay. Let's start with the money, right? So I sold my business and I've got $800 million. I now need somebody to manage that for me. I could give it to my bankers, but actually I want to control it a little bit more because I think I can do a better job. So then you go out and you hire a chief investment officer. This would be somebody who works in asset management, could be in a private bank, and they're a portfolio manager. Depending on how much money you're managing, you may want to hire two or three of these people. One may be a specialist in private equity. One may be a specialist in fixed income and managing bonds. And the other may be global equity. So depending on how big you are and how sophisticated, you may have one, two, or three of these. So these are dedicated portfolio managers. And that goes to the heart of that regulation. You should have people who are fund managers or have an experience in the investment management industry, right? And these can be people who have got degrees and have limited experience, or they can be fully-fledged, hardcore fund managers. Then you need an accountant who can keep track of all the money. Because one of the big challenges in a family office is you have the investment guys and they look at investment performance and they look at the numbers a certain way based on how they view the world. Unfortunately, in the real world, the way the investment guys view things and the way the bean counters or the accountants view things can often be different. You need an accountant. You need a CFO who can look at things broadly and that CFO will work with your tax advisors, and maybe you outsource some of your accounting. So you've got a CIO, then you have a CFO. That CFO may have a junior accounting person working for them, or they may outsource to an accounting firm. Then if you're really big, and definitely there are these family offices that exist in Singapore, then you need a chief operating officer because you're going to have technology, you're going to have systems, you're going to have office space, you're going to have payroll, HR, all this kind of stuff. So you park that under a chief operating officer. So you're going to probably have a COO and maybe he'll have a technology person. So I'm talking about a family office now that's probably $800 million and above, maybe a billion and above. But then you've got a team of eight to 10 people in that range. If you're one of these smaller 100 to 250 million, maybe you've got the chief investment officer and the chief financial officer, and each of them have one or two people. So you've probably got an office three to five people there. So that's what you need. And the bigger you get and the more money you're managing, or maybe you have a huge portfolio of properties, right? So maybe you're outsourcing that to a property manager, or maybe you're doing it yourself. You're managing the rent roll. So that's why I say it can be like a business, right? Yeah, it, just depends it really can. On what your assets are. And some families that I know invest in private companies, right? So they invest directly and take stakes in little startup companies. And so then you've got to have someone who's managing that book of business. And maybe it's the owner because he's passionate about that. There's a saying, Andrea, if you've seen one family office, 
you've seen one family office because none <laughs> of them are the same, right? They're all no, different. No, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. And it also depends on the size of your net worth as well, right? The size corresponds to your size, your wealth size as well, right? It looks like I'm in the wrong profession here. <laughs> you and me both. Surely a lot of jobs out there available for those who want to get into the business of family offices. And I'm sure that fintech players, fund managers, they're also in the mix. In that sense, they also provide business opportunities for locals here, right? Absolutely. So if you go back to what I mentioned before, when you're going to set up, you need to talk to someone first. You need to talk to a lawyer. They can help you with your application with the MAS so that they can help you with your trust structures or your legal entities. So then you're going to hire a lawyer in Singapore and he's going to have people working or she will have people working for them. You're going to need accounting support, big four, boutique, they're going to need people. Yeah. And all the fintech players, there's ourselves that we try to offer solutions. We're not the only one. There are portfolio management tools. There are all sorts of things. So that's the ecosystem that is building up in Singapore and is quite rich because there are layers of experts that are around who can manage all those different aspects of the family office. But then that becomes a challenge when you're in the family office because if you're the, that one to three man band or woman band, then you're facing off against multiple advisors. There's many of them and you need to know who you want to use and why you want to use them. But yes, the ecosystem here I think is thriving. I think there's a lot of opportunity, and that's why I think the Singapore government's been clever by trying to get people to come here and also then trying to get them to reinvest and help our ecosystem to grow and expand. Yeah, and expand indeed. It looks like Singapore will be doing when it comes to the family office space. Hey, thanks, Brian, for sharing these great insights into the world of family offices, a very rarefied view into the world of the ultra-high net worth. You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me today. And for those listening, whether you're thinking of getting a job with a family office or wondering if you should open one, we hope you've found some answers in this episode. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode of Money Talks, there's more content for you to enjoy. Simply follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us five stars or leave a review while you're there. Or write to us at cnapodcasts at mediacorp.com.sg. The team behind Money Talks is Joanne Chan, Jacqueline Chan, Sayewint, Crispina Robert, and I'm Andrea Hing. <laughs>